Hello and welcome back to another special episode of the Rugby Paper podcast. The headline for this week is that Steve Borthwick has been appointed as coach of England. Chris, Nick and Brendan join me to discuss his appointment and stick around for the end as we do an awards for 2022, including Game of the Year, Team of the Year, Player of the Year and more. Last episode of the year. I can't quite believe it. can't quite believe we're 46 episodes in as well, but rounding off 2022 with a bit of a bang actually no special guests again this week because again we've got so much to talk about and it's just going to be a review with nick kane chris hewitt and brendan gallagher great to see you all for one final time in 2022 lots to discuss steve borthwick finn russell and then we'll do a review of the year including game of the year player of the year and team of the year so stick around for that First things first, the headline of the week, Steve Borthwick in. It was kind of the worst kept secret in rugby by the time it was announced. We aren't surprised. Brendan, how do we feel having seen him come in, having seen the early interviews, having seen the Kevin Sinfield appointment? Yeah, no, I mean, it was pretty much signposted as the obvious choice. Uh, When we last spoke about it, it was just the fine detail that hadn't been worked out. I was a little bit surprised that that hadn't been worked out and there wasn't a seamless transition, but so be it. I mean, Sinfield strikes me as the key appointment. I thought he would he would have to go with Borthwick, and that's why. And obviously, Leicester have had their you know their top management group decimated there, and they were digging in, rightly so, getting the best financial deal. They've got very big shoes to fill. Sinfield's an inspirational guy, very good with the press. Borthwick is is the thinker, um, not so brilliant with the press, but I think he's got a little bit better. Um, but he, he's just head down, making England as good a team as possible. Sinfield will deflect some of that attention um, and, and good luck to them. You know, England are a team that should be much better than they are. I think they had to do something. They've done something. And now we've got to give these guys the space to do it. Nick, I'm going to ask you about Bill Sweeney. He said that it felt like a new era. Do you actually get that impression? Yeah, in a, in a, in a sense, I do. Um, because Eddie Jones is gone. And um, it was high time that Eddie Jones did go. He's uh, still saying that he believes that he could have won the World Cup with England and that they were heading absolutely in the right direction. And um, all the uh, signposts uh, over the last two years have indicated that that is just a load of clap, clap, clap trap. So, um, yeah, I I do think that it's a, a new age, but I also think that yeah, I mean, it obviously is. but um, And I think Borthwick's his own man as well. I, I don't take this stuff that he's just an Eddie Jones uh, clone. But the telling factor with any new coach, and it's the first thing that he's got to do, is selection. Selection is what identifies the, the, the great from the, the good, the average, and so on in terms of, of coaching. So his first thing is selection. And... Um, uh, the captaincy is probably the the first call, and then obviously the twenty three he selects against Scotland, and um, those are the immediate challenges. Everybody can talk a good game and talk all the uh, you know the positives about you know where England can go and so on, but until you know we see in that first game what uh, Borthwick manages. And how he manages to uh, to to get the team back on its feet, it's all it's all uh, hot air, really. Since you mentioned captain, we're going to talk about it a bit later. But let's start with that. Then I'll go around the room, Chris. I'll start with you. Who's your choice for captain? Well, if 
if Farrell's going to, if Owen Farrell's going to play, which at this stage of the game you assume he will, then I rather assume he'll be captain. I don't have any any problem with that, partly because he sort of plays like a captain anyway. <laughs> he captains things when he's not captain, so you just well let him crack on with it. He do, he does seem to be uh, to, to to bring all the all the on field equipment of captaincy. He, he is a, a fire and ice player. He's he's ice cold when he's kicking. He plays in 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 the the fires of his sort of um of, of his emotions and what have you in terms of physicality when he's when he's defending. He's got all of those. To me, he has all of the equipment really to be um. To, to be a, a very positive captain. But what, what you need out of this is a very clear idea of how England are going to play, what they're meant to be doing out there and not sort of make it up completely as they go along. Borthwick will be fantastic at the nuts and bolts. I mean, their set piece will improve for sure. Scrum and line out will be a whole lot better than they have been in recent matches. Uh, but what you do with the ball the shape that you try to put on your game, that's where Steve is going to be. The people are going to be looking for Steve to prove himself. He's not, um, he doesn't have the reputation of being a rugby, a rugby philosopher for want of a better word, like uh, let's say uh, um, a Brian Ashton would be a classic example or a Carwin James or whatever it is. He's not that kind of guy at the moment. He'll get the mechanics of the game right but the overall shape of the game and what what kind of place someone like uh, someone like Owen Farrell has within it will be very interesting to see how that um, how that unfolds and that may not be a quick process that may not be a quick process that may take a, a, an entire championship for even the first signs of that to start coming through so anyone who's expecting to hit the ground running in the six nations and thinks it's essential to how the rest of the year or the rest of Borthwick's regime pans out I don't really, I don't really buy that argument. I don't think it's an immediate thing. I think people are going to have to have some some patience with it. So I hope he sticks with Farrell uh, because I think he's pretty much the obvious candidate. But what I would say, just in closing this long ramble uh, about this, is that it's never easy for coaches to wield complete and necessary authority over the players if they've actually played with them themselves. That can be quite difficult. Borthwick has an entirely different relationship with Farrell, stretching back years, to the kind of relationship he would have, have over relative newcomers into the England side. I've seen people struggle to be captain of players that they spent years playing alongside. So to coach these people is really quite difficult. And whether Steve can make that jump, again, remains to be seen. I think it's a very positive appointment. I think there's a lot of potential there. I like the guy personally for all his platitudes and and utterly predictable say-nothings in his press conferences. I think he's a, an incredibly sincere bloke. I think he's got a hell of a lot of the necessary gifts, but it's going to take time and people will need to be patient, I think. Did Borthwick play with Farrell? Yeah. Yeah, he did. <clears throat> he did. Uh, early on in Farrell's career, and obviously. Well, Farrell has been years. playing since 2008, hasn't he? So when yeah. did Steve retire? After that, yeah, yeah, not internationally, suppose, club level. I suppose that's interesting because they have a player relationship. I think Jerry Guscott said in in his column for the rugby paper he expects Farrell to be dropped as captain, and obviously that his place in the team is under threat. Yeah. Nick or Brendan, do either of you agree with that? 
Yeah, well, look, I, I, I absolutely agree with it. I think that Farrell has had his chance as captain. He's captain England 37 times. I don't believe that his form as an inside centre uh, merits him being in the team. Um, I'm not convinced about the Smith-Farrell continuing with the Smith-Farrell axis. I don't think that um, Owen has showed uh, on numerous occasions where England have hit a, uh, a sort of tactical brick wall that he has the wherewithal to be able to uh, change the game plan. You know, it, with Jones, everything seemed to be coming from the, uh, you know, from the coach's uh, um, box to down to the, down to the pitch. So I, I would say that England need to look. Um, at, I, I sort of agree with Chris that there, there's an interim period here. You can't jump on on Borthwick's back immediately and sort of say produce them, you know, a, a magic solution to something which is uh, is not immediate. I would stick with Courtney Laws. He's back fit. His captaincy has been, I think, for England has been pretty solid. I look back over it, you know, going back to the the autumn series before uh, this one, twenty twenty one, and then obviously there was the Australia tour, and uh, in which I thought he, you know, he he was very very influential on 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 the on the pitch in terms of pulling them through that series. So I would definitely go for Laws as an interim captain, if that's what he needs, and and have a look at at, at the players, uh, you know, around. You know, I mean, Tom Curry, I think, has lost uh, a, a fair bit of form, and I'm not sure that he... I don't think, you know, that principle of selecting someone who is cast iron in the team is one of the oldest mantras that there is, and I think that it has to... You know, I think that any coach must, you know, give that uh, pride of place in a way. So Ellis Genge, for example, I mean, there have been a number of people talking about Genge's credentials. I think that they were significantly undone during the autumn by what happened at the set piece. I'm not sure that I don't believe that he's absolutely sure of his place. I certainly don't think he should be on uh, on merit, if you like. I mean, you can have props who are very good around the field, and I and I, I I certainly believe that he is. You know, he's 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 one of England's best carriers. But the nuts and bolts of it that uh, that Chris alluded to, they are so important. You know, they are what is what of un- the lack of them is what has undermined England. And um, you know, if they get them back uh, quickly, then. You know, I mean, I think that there are enough signs in terms of backline that they've, they they can do plenty. But the truth is England actually are, are very short, I think, on natural captains. And the elephant in the room for me is Mauro Itoje, who captained them to a Junior World Cup long, long ago uh, as a teenager, capped Saracens to the old A title, the A League. And now he now his form is not great, I don't think. And actually, we sometimes we're getting the worst of him, the, the sort of shrieking, hollering, penalty machine and I just wonder if it's worth a punt I there's no reason why he shouldn't be a really good captain yeah uh, and I just wonder if his game might not need the responsibility of captain to stop the nonsense of the shrieking and hollering to to just tighten up on the defense and the penalties he gives away and to become the main man again now he's still playing well enough I think to be an automatic choice but he's nowhere near the world 15 this year which he has been for sort of three or four years 
So I just wonder if it might not be a timely boost to his game uh, to give him you know, ultimate responsibility. Having said that, there might well be that interim period that you and Chris talk about, you know, because it's, it, it comes down very quickly, doesn't it? The, uh, the Six Nations, after Christmas, bang, we're there. It's, it's interesting um, what the point that Nick raises about, um, about the ability to change things on the field. I remember Graham Moore, who's one of the great captains ever, ever, both in terms of the results he delivered in a different age when there were far fewer test matches, of course, but also in the esteem in which he was held by players and administrators and what have you. And he was he was a giant of a captain. And in his autobiography, I think I'm right in saying he made the case that it was very, very difficult for a captain to make significant changes in the course of a game. Largely because the side has been sort of picked around a notion of how you're going to play. And if you, of course, these were the days when you didn't have eight people coming off the bench and what have you. So we're not really comparing apples with apples here, strictly. But it's an interesting point. I mean, I'm, I'm scratching my head trying to think of a, a game where a captain obviously turned the tide of events to such a degree that uh, an impending defeat, convincing defeat, was turned into something else. I'm not saying it hasn't happened. I just can't think of uh, one off the top of my head. Well, I'm I'm certain that it's happened. Um, Sam and... Warburton, I'd offer up as a couple of times when yeah. Wales were playing, where he um, sorted it out defensively and made it ha- just made it happen for them. Now that I'm... might be an example of leading by example, and that's where I think yeah maybe Marotoji is worth a go because. Mauro told you at his very best, leading by example, has to be a leadership figure. You know, and likewise, Richie McCaw. You know, I mean, a more uh, recent all-black example. I mean, in terms of a player who could swing momentum in terms of games and particularly with the impact at the the breakdown, um, I think McCaw was definitely capable of doing that and did that. I mean, I can remember they started... I don't know that. I don't remember whether McCaw came on or whether he was um, whether he wasn't fit. But they had Sam Kane uh, playing against Argentina during the 2015 World Cup, and they started awfully. I can't remember whether McCaw came on and and swung that one or not. But just his overall influence, I think, was uh, you know was 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 enormous. And uh, so, yeah, I do think I do think I, play, I, I, mean, I buy the argument that, that, that there can be momentum shifts and what have you. I, I'm, I'm just talking about something much more structural in the way of side is approaching the game. I mean, we've all I mean, uh, that we, we've all played the game to um, uh, one level or another. Uh, you know, there's a thousand times where you've heard the captain sort of saying, well, look, we've got to tighten this up. You know, we need to win some scramble. You know, we need to, you know, we need to stop driving line outs because we're not getting anywhere, etc. I mean, those those, those things are, are are the meat and drink of, of on-field captaincy. And they can be key. And they and they can be very important. They're, yeah, they can be important. But but in terms of, I, I can't believe that Owen Farrell doesn't, is not capable of identifying aspects of the game that are going wrong and asking people to tighten them up. But if you're actually trying to completely recalibrate the way you're playing, I think that's very difficult. in rugby. And also managing the ref. I don't think he's a great manager of the ref. Um, what was that cup time of European? Was it Edinburgh at home the other day I was watching? And he started off all nice and matey and friendly with the ref. And he'd lost it by, you know, when when things started going wrong. Mm. Um, 
And, and it's a very important part of the game. You're yeah, right. And, and yeah. of course, England, what they did under Woodward, they got Dawson to manage the ref and let Jono do the inspirational totem pole hmm. bid. But that's that's the, that's unusual. Most refs, most captains are expected to be the man who, who manages the ref. And, and Warburton is absolutely brilliant. Was absolutely brilliant at it. Yeah, I mean, that absolutely. was a real, that was a massive part of his game. Yeah, huge. And I'm not sure that Maro Atoje. <laughs> well, this is why it'd be shit or bust with Maro. But I think it might sharpen him up if he was the man who had to do it. It is the man chipping away in the background. He's definitely one of the one of the, uh, the the candidates that you know for the captaincy that Borthwick must look at. I, I, I'd agree with that going forward. Well, Steve make himself a... wasn't brilliant at handling referees, of course. <laughs> I mean, as, Eng as England captain, I mean, he just used to walk up to them like Eeyore with a <laughs> mouth full of thistles and and sort of say in sort of some basso profundo. Nobody could understand what he was saying, and and. It was so. So he he wasn't a genius in this himself. I think he would accept. And what do we make of the fact that Maro Toje was never a? I don't think he was even a vice captain under Eddie Jones. Eddie Jones was very open about selecting vice captains. I think over the autumn we had Genge and Noll. Tom Curry obviously came in. Laws was vice captain when Farrell was fit, etc. Itoje was never even vice captain and as one of the sort of spearheads of the forward pack of the entire team that seems a bit weird to me does anyone else very odd i've always well? thought it was very odd and yeah. in fact he, he you know he slapped him down a bit in public as well didn't he a couple of times about why well, 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 without a doubt he thought he had too big an ego i, I mean well, wasn't I, a good sure communicator as well i think was the other thing he was saying I, I can already hear the lawyers phoning but i mean it, it was an absolute fact that eddie thought that marrow was he 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 wants um he want he certainly gave the impression Eddie of uh, spending at least some of his working week reminding Marrow that the game wasn't all about him. Yeah, I listen. I mean, we've we've all been in in interviews with uh, Marrow Toji. I think he's very articulate. <laughs> I think that he does have a you know an empathy with people. I think that he could do the job. Uh, pretty well and I think that yeah I think Bren's absolutely right if he gets rid of all the sort of yelling and backslapping stuff and so on and so forth and he's a smart enough guy to understand that that would have a very limited shelf life as, as a <laughs> so um, yeah look I mean I, I think that he's got the credentials I remember that 2014 uh, junior world title that they won. He actually wasn't the uh, the captain. No, he wasn't. No. Callum, well, he Callum took over from Callum Brady. You couldn't That's get right. And he, he did dropped. in the final. He did a a, a really outstanding job. You know, he mm. they they were under the pump a lot, and they were a much smaller pack than you know a typically gargantuan South African under twenty pack, and uh, they outplayed them. You know, yeah, yeah. And he was a big part of it. His, you know, his sort of calmness, but also huge effectiveness, which has characterized, you know, the best of his play. And I'm sure that he can get back to that. I think he's a he, he, look, he's a, he's a great rugby player. Itoji. There are two guys in the England team at the moment. But Borthwick says we're not world class in any any area. Well, Itoji at his best is definitely world class. And Stewart is definitely world class, in my view. Yeah, I don't think there's too too many more at the moment, but there are a lot of people who really need to raise their game under Borthwick massively if they want to be part of the future. But um, as you know, as England players, but I um, I definitely think that he's got two there. But are you then saying that England's captain has to be world class? And I would argue that Courtney Laws 
can be in the world class discussion as well when he's fit and firing and fully at his best. Yeah, look, I mean, I've, I've, I, 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 I agree. But Courtney's getting on for thirty. If he's not thirty four already, he's getting on for thirty four. Yeah, he's, he's had a, a serious concussion uh, issue uh, already this season. So I think we just need to, you know, just tread a little bit carefully around him. I think if he's fit then um you know he's probably the guy to go to just because of the you know the exigencies the logistics of the situation at the moment with Scotland so you with the six nations imminent so uh he's he reminds a, me nick you know he reminds me of another northampton back five player he reminds me a lot of robber yeah in 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 the in this respect that he is as as ollie says he is capable of world class performances yeah. However, you want to define that. I mean, there are on a big Courtney Law's day, he plays as well as anyone can play in that role. Yeah, uh, I mean that third, test, that third test against Australia in the oh. summer, he pulled them through. Oh yeah, yeah. No, he 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 can do that as 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 could Rob Bear. But uh, it, it's a bit like um, it, it, it's a bit like the old Wagner operas, isn't it? You know, they have brilliant minutes and terrible half hours. I'm not saying Courtney's terrible. I mean that's a bit unfair, but he go. But he, do, he he doesn't produce that level of performance. He's done it more of late, I, I would agree, but he doesn't really produce that level of performance game on game on game on game, which is what people like Martin Johnson would do. So a coach would tell you, if I've got a bloke who's going to give me 65 70% of himself uh, more often than not and 95% on, on a, in a big match, uh, then that's fine. But if I'm going to have a Martin Johnson who gives me 90% every time he plays, then I'll take that any day of the week. I, I, I think he's he's much more consistent than than you do, Chris. And, um, you know, I mean, I can remember, yeah, as as will you, you know, when he first came on the scene, and he actually was a blindside when he first came mm. on the scene, and he was producing these extra set tackles <laughs> at everybody agog, you know. I oh, mean, without a doubt. So he's, you know, and he's he's massive experience, you know. I mean, during that 2017 Lions tour, him coming off the bench was a significant part in them uh, drawing that series. I think uh, in those last two tests, I, 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 you know, I mean, I really do think he's uh, he's got a pair of hands that England probably need at the moment. I feel like the the laws candidate is obviously obvious because he's drafted and he's done it before and the Atoje one is maybe for after the World Cup and that sort of brings me to my next point which is how well, much maybe role... after the Six Nations or maybe after the... uh, yeah maybe but yeah. that's obviously still leaving not very long until World okay. Cup time yeah. and this raises the question of how much of a revolution is actually possible in between now and World Cup time. Borthwick's direction has been interesting because I'm sure you gentlemen watched his first press conference there was barely mention of the World Cup. It was more that he was looking to relight that fire. He kept speaking about getting the roar at Twickenham back, rekindling the relationship with the fans. This would suggest to me that actually all his sorts of appointments and all the things he's going to be doing are kind of slow burners rather than a really speedy revamp of everything where it's England cricket-esque, new captain, new coach, new style of playing. It's rather... Go back to basics, strengthen the set piece, and find England's building blocks, and that will be their identity going forward. It's an interesting one because using that cricket and that cricket analogy, it's almost the same players, isn't it? That couldn't win a test at all. And we were speaking the other week, weren't we, about England's failure 2015 World Cup 
two months later, they start a Six Nations campaign where they get the Grand Slam with almost no additions other than Mauro Itoji from memory, who was brought into the squad. So what is what is it that is going to change it? Personnel or the approach or just the confidence or whatever? And, and this is where this is where Steve Borthwick has to show his you know excellence as a coach. And the fact that he did it pretty quickly with Leicester is mm. quite a good sign. He he knows his own mind. He's definitely going to, as Chris said, he's definitely going to get the basics absolutely nailed down. He was talking a lot, wasn't he, about Woodward's old banner over the, the change room about, you know, be brilliant at the basics, I think it was, or something like that. That is going to be, that will be what he does for the first couple of months. And if that gets England a competitive Six Nations, that will be a pretty good start. What he does this summer, that that's the key one. Does he expand the approach or does he just build on what he's already improved on? Um, that's going to be very interesting to watch. I can't really predict it at the moment. You, you have to remember, of course, that and we 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 sailed down this river before, um, and I'll probably get shouted down. But Steve Borthwick, in those two initial seasons with Leicester, where he basically kept them up and then won a title, there was, was no relegation. There, 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 there was a there was another bloke who kept them all, or kept them off the bottom and then won a title, and that was George Ford, mm. and. I think I think Steve and England will feel the lack of George Ford um, quite acutely, and, and and of course Eddie in the end, Eddie, Eddie in the end sacked him off, and um, and I think that was probably a bit premature because he is the, Steve is not a fireman like Eddie Jones is. He? He's not he's not coming in to fix something quickly, which Eddie Jones can do. He's proved he can do it. Sometimes he's had more time. Uh, to do this than in than in other um, than other situations, but he is a bit of a quick turnaround specialist. I mean, Steve doesn't have that kind of track record. He doesn't well, have that breadth of international but, experience. Well, but Chris, in in a way, he 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 does in 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 one sense because that Leicester thing was a pretty quick turnaround, and um, you know Ford's part in it is obviously very significant, but. Um, you know, I mean, Borthwick was the man who who had to shape it, and he did shape it. So I'm not sure about that. And and, and I also think, you know, if you look back to him working with uh, Jones with Japan, you know, they that transformation was also a a, a pretty well. Although it was a four year uh, process, but what they had to do in order to get that competitive was pretty damn remarkable. And he oh, was remarkable, a big yeah. part. He was a big part of that happening. I mean, that Japan line-out, how, how does a coach actually make his forwards three foot taller? Yeah. And and how does he manage to get quick ball oh. to the back of a scrum? Although I think Mark Del Masso probably oh, had yeah. Yeah, that yeah. as well. But, you know, with a very, very, you know, you consider that South Africa game, they were probably, you know, at least a stone a man lighter, if not more. And the, the ball... The speed of the strike and the ball to the number eight's hands was bloody, you know, it was beautiful to watch. Well, well this you know. this all goes back to the cap- captaincy thing as well, doesn't it? So, so I'm sure I've said before on this podcast when we've been talking about Borthwick, I know a bunch of players of all different stripes. I, I mean, you could not have a more differing bunch of characters from Danny Grucock on one end through to Alex Goo through to Ollie Barkley, might have you completely different people who all swear. By Borthwick as a captain, the best captain they ever played under by a country mile. I mean, not even close. They didn't win much. Well, Saracens won a bit. Well, Saracens did, but Bath didn't. Well, Bath didn't win a lot. And that was why Steve 
left in the end because he felt that there was very little ambition in the club at that time under under brain sword very little ambition and he went to saracens and and was instrumental in building you know he he wasn't alone mark mccall and ed griffiths if you like there's a whole bunch of people there who who yeah. played a pretty big part in what saracens became but borthwick was was very very yeah. very very formidable in that and the reason i'm raising this is is there an individual available to him who can perform that kind of captaincy role, the kind of captaincy role that he performed. Now, the club environment is difficult, is different to the international environment, of course, but he was very distinct, a very distinct individual in what he was able to achieve as captain. And does he have an automatic, um, is there an automatic choice out there where that can be emulated? I'm not particularly sure there is, but. Steve was always the adult in the room, wasn't he? So I don't know who the adult in the English Do you think he was is. ever a child? Exactly. Steve was always the adult. He always seemed about 10 years older than everybody else on the pitch. So yeah. I don't know if England have anybody of that ilk, that respect, that sort of status at the moment. I think it also depends on the type of culture that has already been cultivated behind closed doors. And I think it's interesting how a couple of people have come out and spoken about Eddie Jones. Farrell obviously said how disappointed he was. I know, Nick, you wrote in your column that that's because Farrell was a, you know, he Jones picked him. Um, or, or or words to that effect. Never forget, self-interest is a huge... <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Look, I can't help but agree slightly, and there are obviously allegations of bullying culture that came out in 2018, and James Haskell has basically spoken out and said, well, look, where are these people now that Jones has gone who have come out and spoken about it? But there's always there was always this impression in the autumn, you know, they were players were saying oh the squad's tighter than ever you know this we're, we're tighter than we were in the 2019 world cup and then the disharmony in the team and the overall lack of passion for playing for england it seemed like there was something behind closed doors so maybe rather than finding an adult in the room it's rather actually getting everyone in the same room that has to be the priority it, it's, it could be, it could be. There, there's not a long history is there of england I, I, the the whole England culture, for want of a better phrase, is um, I mean it's worth a book in itself if you get people to speak honestly about it. It's um, I mean what what Woodward ended up with between sort of two thousand two thousand and three was a bunch of extremely experienced players who were absolutely on the same page. I mean he had a he had a he had a group of, a group of guys around him who were absolutely going the extra mile for this whole thing. I mean, I mean, the the whole Lawrence Delalio, the, the 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 Wasp group in that World Cup winning side. I mean, they were doing extra training in, in, in club time and all that kind of thing. And it was it was a very 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 focused and dedicated and committed group of players who just about got to that World Cup. They peaked a little bit earlier than the World Cup final, but it was um, but they but they got there. And I'm not sure. That there's been a group um, since who were even close, not within a bull's roar of that kind of collective focus. I'm just not sure it existed. Lancaster, I think, had the p- potential because he was a pretty good man manager, particularly in the early part of his regime. But I don't think we've been close. And 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 Eddie is a little bit. He's a bit of a shame culture merchant, isn't he? I mean, he's quite divisive. I think he probably quite. He thinks he he thinks of himself as a master of sort of creative disruption. He would love all that kind of thing. He's not, you know, I mean, he's the polar opposite to a, a, a Lancaster or a, um, I mean, Jack Rowell did the same with the great bath sides. 
he was always sort of factionalizing people against each other to try and get this creative tension to sort of coalesce on the field where the anger turned, you know, the mutual anger turned into results. He was quite good at it. There were some people he couldn't bully, of course, but um, but he, he had a group of players who bought into that. And I'm not sure in the ultimate in the ultimate analysis, Eddie ever had a group of players who built into the creative tension that he created. Yeah, that's because there was so much, you know, it's a sort of very weird amalgam of lots of chopping and changing, people coming in the, around the edges of the squad and so on and so forth, and then keeping a group of players right at the centre of it who were virtually immovable. So it was, you know, there was a stasis about the whole thing in the end, even though there was this massive churn around the outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something I wanted to get to, actually, Nick, was about the sort of chopping and changing of particularly the backroom team. And I think that's one thing England have to avoid. And maybe one thing that has also been overlooked when we consider the strife of England in the past couple of years is that backs coach, forwards coach, scrum coach, etc. It's just been this constant turnover. You know, his coaching setup was just bizarre at the end and people are just overlooking that fact, don't you think? Yeah, I, I think it, it was bizarre. And, and what was also bizarre about it and um, speaks a, a lot of uh, Eddie's uh, modus operandi is that his assistant coaches got very, very little opportunity to tell us what it was that they were trying to achieve. Always when they spoke, they were pretty stilted. Uh, the one guy who broke the mould was um, was wise mantle when he came in and sort of said, uh, listen, he, he doesn't bother me and so on and so forth. And then the next time he spoke, he was a lot more circumspect. So they were the they were very much the backroom men and they were sort of, there was a revolving door of them, but it was all him. You know, it was his it was his show and it was very obviously his show. So I do think that um, uh, Steve Borthwick is is more sort of will be more consultative and will give hopefully his assistant coaches uh, a little bit more of the uh, the spotlight and that you won't see the same sort of churn. You know, I mean, that, he, the, you know, the, the people he picks are probably the people who will stay around him for a long time and um you know and then you come to you know who he's going to appoint in various roles he's obviously bought kevin sinfield who you know by all accounts and you know by his deeds is uh you know a considerable human being i don't know enough really about his um his qualities as a coach you, you know uh, other than that a league defence coach has a very, very good idea of the flatline defences that now exist in rugby union. So, but he's obviously somebody who's very important to, uh, to, to Steve Borthwick in terms of an attack coach, which is what England really need to look at. I think that the people who've got the credentials are clearly Kevin Sorrell at Saracens and Nick Evans at Quinns, uh, two people who, who sort of you'd say that on 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 the merit of those two clubs are the leaders. It sounds as if Richard Cockrell will stay certainly initially as the forwards coach. Whether he brings in a scrummaging expert on top of that or whether that's too many cooks, I don't know. But yeah. Yeah, the Sinfield thing is very interesting. Obviously, it's made waves and you look at his CV and obviously rugby league legend at Leeds comes into Union, obviously makes an immediate impact at Leicester. 
Sean Edwards is obviously the one that never was when you consider England defence coaches and rugby, and maybe he'll connect with some sort of setup in the future. But maybe, Chris, you could say something about why Kevin Sinfield has the reputation he has in Union, despite it's still, you know, he's very much blossoming, where Sean Edwards is obviously a seasoned veteran by this point. Well, Kevin Sinfield comes from rugby league, so that's where his reputation comes. I mean, it, it, it seems that in the Northern Hemisphere, you can't move. You can't find a defence coach who's not a league. It's a slightly different downside. But when you think of, you know, Phil Larder, Mike Ford, Andy Farrell, a couple of the people who have gone through the, the Eddie Jones mix. And I would say, actually, that that churn of coaches, just as a little aside, that churn of coaches seems to me to be, look, uh, I'm less condemnatory about Eddie than a lot of other people, but I think that was a massive flaw. And it has to say something. I mean, the old joke about what's the difference between the England rugby team and the yoghurt a yogurt has a culture is just um it, it just rings true to me there has to be something wrong if you're churning through coaches with that amount of with that regularity warren gatland didn't change his coach coaching team in a decade mm. at all he surrounded himself with people he trusted and that was the fixed point that was the fixed point every every team needs a fixed point you can't keep on turning up next week I remember Kieran Bracken back in the bad Saracens days of saying, I hated turning up on the first game of the sea, uh, first training session of the summer because I was going to have to introduce myself to 20 people I've never met before because the churn of players was so great. There has to be some consistency. England's meant to be the best of the best. You're meant to work really, really hard to get in there and really, really hard to stay there. If everything's going to be changing and the coaches are above that, they're the people who are meant to create the culture. And if you're just changing your coaching team once every six months, twice every six months, it, it smacks of something fairly rotten at the core. So I would say that Sinfield's obviously done a pretty pretty good job at Leicester, like Nick. I don't know the nuts and bolts of it. Um, I don't know how different he is from the Andy Farrells or the Larders or the Mike Fords. I don't know how many different ways of defending in rugby league they are. There are, but he's he's clearly... I think Nick made a very good point, actually, that he is patently quite a significant human being because of all the charity work and everything that he's done. He's clearly a pretty selfless bloke. He's clearly a guy who is prepared to push himself as far as he's asking the players to push themselves. And that counts for a lot. Steve Borthwick would be similar in 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 in, in that respect. And, and the key to it, of course, is the fact that Borthwick and Sinfield have a pretty strong connection developed over a couple of seasons, a season and a half, whatever it is. And that will count for a lot because Steve will need some familiarity in the group to be able to feel that he can kick on and do the thing he things he wants to do. He doesn't want to feel that he's fighting fires within his own coaching team, which Eddie obviously was <laughs> for years. You don't need that. So I hope the Sinfield thing works. There's no, there's no reason on the face of it why it shouldn't work very well. Uh, I hope it works because you really do not need people chopping and changing their coaching team once they've settled on it. And remember, people like Andy Robinson and Brian Ashton never had their own coaching teams. They were imposed upon them. Uh, do, do you know, Chris, that's not true. Andy which Robinson, bit, Which Andy, bit of that isn't true? Well, the, the fact of it is, is that he had the decision to take on all the coaches that Woodward had, and he made the decision to do so. Well, it, well, well, he did, and then they were stripped away from him very quickly by the no, Rugby Football Union. No, no, no. We he, called it the he, day he, of the long lives, Nick. He, I remember writing him. about it at huge he, length. Listen. People like Larder and Dave Allred and Joe Lydon were sacked 
by the Rugby Football Union under Robinson's nose. And Mike Ford and John Wells were brought in without any say-so from Andy. Listen, as I and understand they stayed it, there hey, we've, we've got a difference of opinion here. As I understand it, as I understand it, he got them in one by one and sacked them. Yes, under orders, under the orders of Francis well, Barron. Listen, under the orders of Francis Barron. Right. Okay. So it's it's Barron's fault. So look, if Andy if Andy felt that he was loyal to those guys, he would have said, "Look, I'm off too." Yeah, and that's a massive criticism that you can lay at his door. Andy would accept it now, I think. Yeah. Anyway, time time passed, but uh... and of course Ashton never got to pick his coaching team at all. I mean, he wasn't coached that long, and he had what was left over from the Robinson regime. So there we go. So it is important for people, I mean, I'm simply saying it is very important for a new coach over a period of time to be able to build around him the coaching team he's happy with. I'm sure they will give Borthwick that opportunity. They've obviously He's obviously fought pretty hard for Sinfield. And, and I imagine Steve has said, well, that's, a, that's, that's non-negotiable. I want Kevin with me. That may be what took the time between everyone writing about Borthwick as the next England coach and it actually happening. It may all have been around Sinfield, not not around Steve at all. So that's so that's fine. I mean, as long as as long as he's given the best the best chance to do the job, then he can't ask for any more. Then it's down to him. Well, he's already had one one win, if you like, which is that um, he doesn't have to go with the EPS squad that uh, he inherits from Jones. It looks as if he's going to get a uh, a clear hand there. He got. His main uh, lieutenant in uh, in position in uh, in Sinfield, and hopefully he'll be able to have the coaching team around him that he wants. And uh, you'd say, I would think that that is absolutely a prerequisite. If he doesn't get the coaching team that he wants around him, in a sense, the people who've appointed him have uh, have have a, a great deal to answer for. Indeed, indeed, yeah. Agreed. I think one thing, going back to the significant human being, it's probably worth mentioning what Kevin Sinfield has done in terms of his charity work. Even last month, he ran 300 miles in a week and raised 1.4 million for motor neurone disease, which obviously we've spoken about a lot on the podcast and a lot in the game of rugby with the loss of Doddy Weir. So 7 million total, I think it is. So yeah, massive. Yeah, it's almost superhuman what he's what he's what he's doing. You know, I mean, yeah, it's crazy, extraordinary, really. I think actually, I will ask who very, very, very quickly before we move on, who we think the attack coach should be. Nick, I think you mentioned probably the top two candidates that the bookies would have in Kevin Sorrell and Nick Evans. I would personally vouch for Nick Evans. Brendan, who would you like to see appointed? Yeah, Nick Evans is a hugely impressive bloke. He he gets the. England rugby culture. He's been here, it seems like, forever, although I think it was just after the 2007 World Cup, wasn't it? He joined up. Yeah, perfect. I think he could be really outstanding at it. And uh, I hope that there are moves afoot to make it happen. Do we agree with that? Is that a unanimous or is anyone going to make an argument for Kevin Sorrell? Well, I'd, I'd certainly make an, uh, an argument for, 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 for Kevin. You know, I mean, you look at Saracens and the fact, you know, I mean, their latest result, they go to... Uh, Leon with you know a depleted side in some ways and come away with uh, with a win they score a fantastic try out of their own 22 i think that sorrel's you know what they've achieved during the time that sorrel's been with the club 
obviously it's under the aegis, the overall aegis of, of Mark McCall, but Sorrell's been a, a, a key part of what they've done. He's been the attack coach. I, I, th- I think I'm right in saying pretty well the, the backs coach for the entire period. And their ability, when you look at that that ability to get the sum of the parts, you, you know, to be a, a, have a greater impact perhaps in the individual talents there, you know, you look like at a guy like Lewington now. You know, I mean, he he he, he scores tries for fun, and they the way that they that they dissect opposition defenses in the modern era it, at club level is you know has been you know has been really outstanding. Do you think, Nick, that um, that this 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 separation of responsibilities is entirely? healthy or would a more modern way of this being uh, to have a much more sort of homogenous approach to coaching it's th- this whole here's the defense coach over here and he's going to do his thing in a training session and and here's the attack coach over here and he's going to be there with his whiteboard doing this that and everything else it, it seems to me a be a bit old-fashioned if you, if you take the all blacks i mean scott mcleod if, unless i'm wrong is their defense coach but he's comfortably the least sort of least high profile of their coaching team they never seem to they never seem to talk about it in terms of this guy's doing this in this silo in this sort of ghetto over here and we do everything else I mean I remember when Henry Hansen and Wayne Smith were the triumvirate they would sort of be on a on on a a bit bit of a roundabout where they they do stuff in turn which seems to me to be a, a more a fuller and more combined sort of view of what you're actually trying to do on the field I because everything's that. interactive and organic, isn't it? It's not yeah. separated out on the field. As well, it is Sean the- Edwards certainly does much more than just defence coach at mm. France, that's for sure. Well, I, and and he did at Wasps. You know, I mean, yeah. a lot of Wasps' success was built on 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 that. You know, that counter attack out of offensive defence, and so defence and attack coaches have a, a natural symbi- symbiosis. Don't yeah, yeah. They? So. Yeah, I, I, I take your point, you know, and, and the All Black thing was very interesting. The fact that Wayne Smith went from attack coach to defence coach. Yeah. I don't think he ever did forwards coach, but... <laughs> I, do, I, 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 don't think, I don't think he bumped Mike Cron out of the scrum coach's job. That's, that's for sure. But it's um, but it, it's just, I mean, maybe this happens because, we're, we're, you know, we're not in the inner sanctum, are we? Maybe this happens. I mean, I mean, coaches have meetings about meetings about meetings, as we know. So there must be some symbiosis anyway, almost naturally, because they spend that much time together. But it just seems to me that this rigid identification of someone's speciality just seems a bit Noah's Ark to me, whereas mm. we could be doing well, with some the more old, modern terminology. It's the old NFL or the, the, the NFL thing, isn't it? You know, the, the specialist coaches and... Well, uh, special teams. But yeah. They do have special teams. And it was... Yeah, <laughs> And it was, um, I guess, it was Woodward who bought that, uh, you know, who bought that concept in with great success. So it's yeah. like everything; it's been sort of uh, copied and uh, and and evolved to a degree. But yeah, I mean, it's a good point, you know. I mean, coaches should be should be all rounders, really. Mm. I mean, that ideally, that's that's what they all are. And um, you know, we'll you know, hopefully, we'll see that with Steve Borthwick. Let's put a pin in that discussion because I do want to get to our review of the year. But like like I think Brendan said, we have no idea how it's going to go and no idea how England are going to line up at the start of the Six Nations. Maybe at the start of the next year, we'll pick our team for the start of the Six Nations and see how that compares to what Borthwick 
lines up with that could be good fun now with as many Bath listeners as we have another headline from this week was their marquee signing of Finn Russell what do we make of that Chris well he's a good player isn't he he's he's a he's a pretty good player <laughs> look it would be ridiculous to say I think that any signing of that magnitude in strict team performance terms is is a wrong move it's a it's a cracking capture for Bath He's obviously had his fallings out with Gregor Townsend. He's now back in the he's now back in the group. He seemed to enjoy his time at, at Racing in Paris. Who who wouldn't enjoy it over there? You would hope that those travels and that experience of a different rugby culture has um has gone some way to filling him out as a human being. And that's no criticism of whatever kind of human being Finn was before he went over there. It's just good experience. I'm all I'm all for. I'm all for this stuff. You know, that's just another layer of rugby know-how um, that he brings to the mix. He's an extremely gifted player. What it does for, let's say, an Orlando Bailey, who's a very, very talented young 10, who's played quite a bit of first-team rugby there. I don't know, but Bath aren't the first club to have a very, very bright young 10 with some experience and then bring in a big hitter over over his head. Um, it may work for Orlando Bailey, it may not. Whether in the current climate where there were reports this week of the Premiership clubs being cumulatively £300 million in debt, uh, and we all know what's happened with Wasps and Worcester, and we all know that there are three or four other clubs who, if somebody offered to buy them for a pound and take the debts on, the current owners would snatch their hands off. Whether it's a great look for one of the few, inverted commas, wealthier premiership clubs to be splashing a million or a reported million pounds a year on an individual player when your salary cap is meant to be somewhere around five, it's a bit of an eyebrow raiser. And it doesn't tell me that the premiership community, if there is such a thing as a premiership community, is prepared to pull in its horns a bit in the face of financial if it's not calamity, it's been pretty. It's been something pretty close to it. So I think there are broader questions on 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 exactly on exactly how this looks. If we want to see a a, a truly competitive Premiership continuing down the road, it's a good signing for Bath. It may be a good signing for Bath and stuff everyone else. If that's the spirit of the age, and that's the spirit of the age. It's a it's a good point. It makes a uh, it shows the marquee signing system up for what it for what it is, which is why have a salary cap? <laughs> it's a it's a it's a nonsense in that regard. He's a crowd pleaser. He's a great he's a great player. You know the the stonemason with the mag- magician's hands. You know, I mean, he's a, he's a great player. But there was a very good article written by Tom English. Um, on the BBC website, we're just looking at what he's what he's actually achieved outside that uh, uh, you know that entertainment quotient that he brings, and he he actually hasn't been involved in teams that have won very much at all. And I would say that the biggest signing, if it comes off, or at least a, a signing of uh, similar magnitude because it will enable Finn Russell to do what he does even even better, is Thomas Dutoy, who they're talking about signing at Tighthead, because the Bath pack 
you, you know, at their set piece is is ordinary. It's it's not even ordinary. It's poor, and has been for a long time. So, you know, he he could be he's under the radar compared to Finn in in uh, in terms of publicity and so on. But he could be very very important to them. Um, and Russell I disagree with that. Don't disagree with that. Russell might flourish, but mm. you know, I mean, he's he's thirty now, Russell. So uh, they're they're not getting him. He may be, you know, maybe at, at the end of his pomp. Let's put it that way. Mm. He can. Still... It's an odd one, isn't it? Because he is a box yeah. office player par excellence. But actually, the one thing Bath have not wanted in their dismal form over the last few years is a crowd. They don't need to fill the wreck. They always fill the wreck. So mm. in one respect, it's not it doesn't strike me as a financial thing to sort of try and regenerate the finances of the club, other than if they started winning the championship um, or the premiership. But the other thing that occurs to me is you've got a, a World Cup this autumn followed by a quick turnover and a Six Nations. I mean, how much of Bath can I actually see of him in that first season? Not a lot. It, chuck in a couple of injuries there and it might be on pretty, you know, starvation rations of how much you actually get of Finn Russell there. And the other point is one you were making, Nick. He is a, a beguiling player to watch, but I'm not sure I'd want to be a supporter, a diehard supporter of the team <laughs> he plays in. Because, like you say, they don't seem to win much. And he even divides Scotland fans. Now, Scotland fans, when he's good, love him. But they don't love him that much when he when he makes mistakes. So, I, intriguing signing. I, I think there's pluses and negatives. I think the other thing is, is he a very Johan van Graan player? You know, <laughs> Johan well, van Graan is very rigid. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, who has signed him? Yeah, <laughs> who has signed him? Yeah, it just it, it. I don't know. He obviously came under criticism when he was at Munster from Keith Wood, especially I think, who had some really choice words about his attack. Liberal attack and creative freedom isn't necessarily Van Grand's blueprint to the same degree. And obviously, part of the Finn Russell show is that it is the Finn Russell show. Yeah, um, absolutely. Will Finn Russell be able to be Finn Russell at Bath? Yeah, well, they they haven't been. I mean, from 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 what I've seen of them, they haven't actually been sort of um, a stultifyingly uh, boring since um, Van Gran arrived. You know, they they have moved the ball, and um, so I think that he's he's not applying the same blueprint that he did when he was at Munster. And you know, you've got to give co- coaches the opportunity to to grow as well, and and maybe. He can do that, but you'd think that it's Bruce Craig signing <laughs> rather than rather well, than Van Graan. I, I was gonna, I, I was I was going to disagree with Nick fundamentally there because it's obviously Van Graan signing because as we all know, Bruce Craig is not an interfering kind of club <laughs> owner. <laughs> Bruce makes um, Andrew Brownsword look like Peter Ustinov. No, he doesn't. Uh, I mean, he's he's clearly. You know, Craig is desperate, desperate, desperate to win something. I mean, this is a bloke who's won nothing, nothing since mm-hmm. taking over Bath with all the hoo-ha and hullabaloo that he came in with, basically saying that we're going to win everything because he's not short of confidence, Bruce. He's, you know, in the same way that he's not short of money. He's thrown pretty much everything at this stuff. And he's, and he, you know, the return is nothing and it will hurt him. And it should hurt him, actually. I can understand why he'd be frustrated. Um, so I think that if Van Graan came up with the idea of signing Finn Russell, I can't imagine that Bruce Craig fought hard against it. 
I still think it's rather more likely that Bruce Craig came up with the idea of of signing Finn Russell and telling Van Graan that it's not your job to speak out against it. Who knows? Who the knows? churn at Bath makes Eddie Jones's look as if his blender had bloody well broken. You know, I mean, it's unbelievable. Extraordinary. Number of people, right. amount of money spent. Absolutely. And, uh, Absolutely. And, and, and actually, coaches have managed to be moved on at Bath when they were in the process of achieving quite a lot. Yeah. You know, Steve yeah. Meehan left it a ridiculous time. Mm. Mike Ford actually left it a, a pretty strange time. Yeah. Also, it's been it's been very it's been very odd, and and uh, it's it's there's been a, an air of desperation yeah. from the top about we've got to change this because it's not quite working. Oh, we haven't won another. It's another year we haven't won a premiership. We've got to change things. And there's it goes back to our previous con conversation about continuity and the building blocks of success. You have to have the patience to get the blocks to build. If you don't have that, then you're going to be pretty lucky to win anything. So, and and Grikey, who what club discovered that more than anyone else? Saracens, yeah. who were going it to sort of two coaches a season for years, for years, until the Brendan Benton, Mark McCall thing came on, and then there was complete stability, and they've been absolutely fantastic. It does mean that the clock's ticking on trophies and silverware at Bath, doesn't it? So probably give it a couple of seasons intriguing signing i think one of you said and that's definitely the right word for it okay here we go i haven't put you men on the spot i've let you know in advance i thought that would be a little bit cruel but we're going to do a review of 2022 we'll start with game of the year we'll come to brendan first game of the year uh, runner-up australia new zealand the one that was controversially decided at the end by matthew Reynolds' decision but the game that made me open mouth with the physicality and intensity, was France v South Africa in Marseille. Controversy, sending off tries, genuine head-to-head -head of two of the world's great teams. I couldn't get enough of it. Staggering game. Yeah. Absolutely head and shoulders. As intense a game as I've seen in years. Once again, a reminder that, um, uh, that a great game of rugby is not contingent on 12 tries being scored. It was absolutely... Terrific. The, the occasion in Marseille, the staging of the game was was wonderful and it gives us great, great sort of tantalising prospect of what's going to happen at the various grounds in France at the World Cup. So that alone was well worth watching. But the game itself lived up to its staging and that's as much as I can say about it because it, it was remarkable. Yeah, it was a fantastic game. Um, it was a, you know, it's a word used all the time. It was, it took brutality to a uh, a new level just in terms of the physical impact and collisions. It was compelling, um, but I pick another France game. I pick France against Ireland in the Six Nations, which I thought in terms of, probably in terms of, 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 of movement in terms of the joust, if you like, in terms of, um, I, I think it, it, it was, you know, there were probably more tries scored in, in, in that game, but they were tries of real quality. And I just thought they were two very, very, you know, exceptional sides, very well matched. And the game went right to the, you know, right to the, uh, the cliff edge in terms of result. I thought it was hugely entertaining. It didn't quite have the, the, you know, the thud and thunder 
of the um of the South Africa France game, but it probably had more finesse. I'm a fud and thunder man, so <laughs> I'm gonna go with France South Africa because that was the game I had in my head as well. But I think two very, very good candidates. Right, team of the year. Quick while you're behind Nick. <laughs> go on nick who's your team of the year you have that one first um ireland and principally because of a not only their 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 overall record but that series win in new zealand and i don't care too much about you know the fact that people have, have, have written new zealand off and they've again showed that they're well they're not they're not at, at, at a peak. Um, they are still pretty, you know, pretty formidable opposition. I thought becoming the first side from Britain and Ireland to win a series in New Zealand for 50 years, for half a century, is a remarkable, uh, it's, a land, it's a landmark. It's a landmark for Ireland. And, um, yeah, so, you know, for me, the first team to win down there since the 1971 Lions from Britain and Ireland. I, I, I give it to Ireland. Chris? That's very hard to argue against, actually. It, 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 is, it is remarkable what they've achieved this year. Uh, the only reason I'm not going to go for them and I'm going to go, go slightly slightly off-piste is that they, I think they started from a pretty high base um, and, and they built on that and they maximised uh, their potential this year, it, they, they've been tremendous. So this is this is not really a passion. Uh, this is not a passionate argument against Ireland as team of the year. I think that's a re- really good call. I would like to put out a shout for the Black Ferns, principally because everyone, not so much thought, but rather assumed that England were going to win that world title. Not me. Uh, well, that's very that's very good. Um, <laughs> Um, and they certainly they they certainly looked as though they had were well equipped to win it. I thought that final was a remarkable expression of the possibilities of rugby strategy and tactics. I thought the Black Ferns, a they had some wonderfully gifted players, particularly in the back line, but the way they managed to rise above an England pack and an England drive, line-out drives, any kind of drive, really, that is very, very difficult to stop under the rules and laws of the game uh, these days, as we've spoken of, of many times on this podcast. I thought that their reaction to that was astonishingly good. It was thrilling. Um, it was adventurous. It was imaginative. And it was a strategic and tactical triumph and for that reason alone um much as much as i admire the professionalism of the england side and their strengths i thought that that was an astonishing response and riposte to a much stronger and much more collectively organized and potentially destructive team and it just reaffirmed my faith in the possibilities of rugby Brendan, are you going to tip the scales one way or the other, or are you throwing um, the third Well, actually, the bar's very high, but I'm not going for either of those. Um, I'm going for France. I think there was a few question marks before France that, uh, for France this year, before the, the, the year started. They went through the whole calendar year unbeaten, obviously. And what they also did, if you if you count the 12 months of November to November, 
they beat every single T1 nation in the world. They mm -hmm. did like the the grandest of grand sweeps, like uh, six nations, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Japan. They did the lot. Um, so it was an utterly historic season for them. They had quite a few injuries, thinking back. You know, it wasn't always uh, smooth. Uh, and they, they needed that season because they, they needed to know they could do that before they go into the World Cup. If they'd had a few blips in the last 12 months, there'd be big question marks still over France, I think, but they didn't. They, they, they absolutely nailed it. And, I mean, I'm very tempted with the island suggestion, but I still think that was a historically good 12 months um, at the you know, as we review the end of the year by, by France. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that, Brent. It was a t tight call. All I'd say is, is that the uh, the summer tour Everest that Ireland <laughs> scaled compared to the sort of medium-sized hill that France scaled in Japan <laughs> in the summer tilted the scales for me, but um, it's, a, it's a very good call. Now, the other thing is, is that they sort of got away with it against South Africa as well. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm very torn, but I'm going to go with Ireland because I think throughout well done, the year... <laughs> Thank you, thank you. Yeah. No arguments. I mean, it was a hellishly good field, but... Checks uh, in the, the post strong, strong field, strong field. I don't think they had a bad performance, Ireland, whereas I think France had a couple of chinks in the armoury that Ireland don't seem to have. So, well, we'll see Six Nations time, but my Ireland are my favourites going to the Six Nations at the moment. Ren Nick, I'll come to you first for Coach of the Year. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of sticking with Ireland. Andy Farrell, I I doubted he'd be able to take uh, Ireland to the next level, and uh, you know after Joe Schmidt, but he's not put a foot wrong. I think he's been uh, been an absolutely tremendous. And so, yep, Andy Farrell. I'm happy to go with Nick on that one. Actually, I mean it was so close anyway between Ireland and France, and and Farrell has, like you say, he surprised me. He's he's at another dimension. They're playing great rugby island. They're a really good team to watch, as well as all the old Irish attributes. So, yeah, happy to go with Andy Farrell. Chris, are you a differential? Yeah, uh, I, I would. Uh, I think Andy Farrell's, Andy Farrell's done a brilliant job. And, and actually, this is the first thing he's ever run. Uh, I mean, it's a number one. Mm. So you 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 have to give him an enormous amount of credit. I do, I do think he's... I mean, he's obviously as a high base in terms of players, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But crikey, you still have to do the job. And I think he's been terrific. I would put in a shout just to be different to my, my colleagues, because I really don't want to be bracketed with them ever. Um, is, uh, is, is, would be, would be, would be, would be Michael Checker, owing to the fact that he, he, he won a series against the Scots. And I mean, we have to remember he's in, in a slightly alien rugby culture here. I mean, it's a very different place. Nick knows a lot about Argentine rugby. It can't be the easiest thing in the world to go strolling over there and trying to make sense of this stuff um, because, you know, there are language and this, that and everything else. It's a test of someone's uh, quick-footedness and ingenuity as a coach to be able to go into that kind of culture and 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 achieve something quickly. Checkers won a series against Scotland his side beat the Wallabies 48-17 a week after taking a bit of a pounding from them, which was a remarkable turnaround. They beat New Zealand in New Zealand for the first time ever. Mm. And he's beaten England at Twickenham. 
Now, there have been some downsides to that as well, but that's Argentine rugby at the moment. Um, it's Argentine rugby probably always. But I th- I do think that there are enough high points in Checker's first, first few months as Argentine coach to say that there is something worth really worth looking at here. And um, and I, I hope it continues because the World Cup needs all the competitive teams it can get. So that would be my reasoning for Checker, but I don't have an argument with Farrell in the end. You had sold me on Checker and then you reminded me of the drubbing by Australia. And so I'm going to go with Andy Farrell. But I think, yeah, shout out to Checker who has created an Argentina team from... Andy Farrell had a base that Checker didn't have. Mm. Let's put it like that. So I'm not interested in you making me feel better, Ollie. Um, <laughs> um, but, but basically, you know, I'm in it to win it. And I'll be pretty foul-tempered if I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll come to you then for the next one, Chewy. Let's go with player of the year. I may not win this one either. Well, actually, uh, I do think, and I do credit myself with being slightly ahead of the game on this. I, I, I wrote this kind of stuff pretty much before this calendar year began. I think Josh van der Fleer has been absolutely sensational. Sensational. And well, I mean, this is a this is a guy who's never been picked for a Lions tour. You know, he wasn't even picked for, he wasn't even picked for the last one when he was patently a very good player. He has flown be, be, below the radar for a long a long period of time. Unfairly on him, I think he's been a standout player and an improving standout player for Ireland for some time now. I think it's entirely legitimate that he's the world. I mean, I don't agree with almost anything World Rugby do about anything ever at any point um, in history. But uh, I think they were right with that one. My 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 other thought is just because I love the way the guy plays is is Damian Peno, who I think is the you know the, just the most eye catching in in an age of eye catching wings, and we there are a lot of them around. But Peno is a pretty sensational bloke um, in his in 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 a very very distinctive style. Mm-hmm. Um, he's Chris Ashton with brains. Basically, and um, I love I love watching him play, but I'm gonna go I'm gonna go with World Rugby, and there's a sentence I never thought I'd say. I'm gonna go with the non-governing governing body and say that Josh van der Fleer is me man. Good call, Nick. You agree? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a it's a very you give it with one hand and take it. Yeah, I wouldn't. I and let me put it this way: if 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 Chris manages to edge it on that one, I'm I'm not going to shout shout loud, but um, against it because he's he's been brilliant. Um, I I've got Penno down as well, um, but I, the the person that you know difficult uh, apples and pears backs and forwards, but uh, Ebenezerbeth is my player. I think that in terms of just. It's not just the physical impact that he makes that moves that team forward. That is the, you know, that is the actual heartbeat of that pack. It's the fact that his work rate for a bloke of that size is phenomenal. I mean, I can't believe where he turns up on the field and 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 makes, you know, telling contributions time after time after time. So. Um, Serially offside. Serially offside. That's why he picks the picks. He's always in the... He's, he's like Martin Johnson. He stands you, can't be serious. Back to him. you can't be serially offside if you run 50 metres back to your own goal line. <laughs> <He won't. laughs> 
<laughs> he's been, no, he's 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 a remarkable player. I I don't I don't have big beefs with Etzebeth. I mean, he's been astonishing this year. Astonishing. Brendan, I, I go with Nick totally on this. I think we we had this conversation, didn't we, at the end of the autumn? Player of the autumn, Etzebeth blows my mind. He is such a force of nature. Yeah. He's just always there. He's always doing it. He's so strong. Uh, I'd be amazed if he wasn't the man of the match in at least ninety five percent of the games he plays. And Josh Vanderveer, brilliant. Damien Penno, brilliant. But who is the world player of the year? Evan Etzebeth, and probably has been for the last two or three years. And there's a whole bunch of people out there who will be absolutely spitting in their tea at the lack of mention of Ardy Surveyor. I was trying to edit myself, but yeah, he, he needs a mention as well. Was Etzebeth even one? Of, I know Surveyor wasn't one of the nominees for World Player of the Year. Was Etzebeth nominated? No, Etzebeth wasn't either. No. Who was it? It was Van der Fleer, Dupont. Can't remember uh, the other two. B- 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 Will oh, Stewart. Unusually. Will Stewart. <laughs> oh, so, uh, Lacanio Am and Johnny Sexton. Lacanio Am only played three matches, didn't he? Yeah, I, mean, I know. That's quite impressive matches. to be That was quite an brilliant that he is. Uh, I'm going to go, and this might smack of bias given that Chewie slightly scared me with his threat to lose his temper, but I'm going to go with Josh van der Fleer. Yeah. I, I, both have been absolutely phenomenal. I think South Africa's patchy summer form was maybe a little bit of a damp squib on Etzbeth's year. I know it's player of the year rather than team of the year, but we'll go with Josh van der Fleer. Um, what's next? Breakthrough player of the year. Again, I have one in mind already. So as long as someone says it, I think that's what I'm going to pick. But I think, we'll I think probably to... a few of us might say. Yeah, I, I think this might be a clean sweep. Is it as long as you can pronounce it correctly? <laughs> and Capucho. Yeah. No, oh, not no, 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 Puerto, yeah. 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 So, uh, brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, they're just Absolutely brilliant. brilliant. He's just yeah. a brilliant player. I mean, where has he been? You know, uh, he, he looked at the man of born from the moment he got two tries in two minutes against Scotland coming off the bench. Uh, yeah. And he hasn't looked back since. Yeah. And the fact that Toulouse snapped him up for a five-year contract even before he played test rugby um, probably would have quite a big clue as to how good he was. Yeah. Also, you have to put it in some context, don't you? I mean, the, the, I mean, he didn't score the try in the end, but the try he created in Cardiff... In in terms of what that meant to Italian rugby, it gave it a, an enormous lift. I mean, until that happened, we were all on the Italians' backs about how can you justify your place in the Six Nations and what about the Georgians and all that. And all those arguments are still there. They're still there. And I do think that there, there's, there's stuff that's got to be done around access to and doorways into the Six Nations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, that moment of brilliance was something... Will be will come to be seen. I'm sure is something way beyond what it meant in and of itself in terms of winning a game at the death. I think it's given Italian rugby an enormous lift, an enormous lift. But it's, um, it's also great, Chris, in the sense that it still shows. You know, in, in the way Shane Williams did. You know, it still shows that the will of the wisp, the little oh. the little bloke. You know, who's you know. I mean, I, I think he's he he, he probably. You know, twelve stone soaking wet. I reckon something like that. Yeah. And he's just his hairband. 
he scored he scored another try against South Africa, which was oh. a cracker as well. You know, I mean, he's he just well, a he got two against yeah. Australia, and the first one was yeah. a voted try of the Six Nations of the Autumn Internationals. And it's really he's the sort of player if you if you've got young kids playing the game, it's not just for Italy; it's for everybody. You know, because he shows that young kids, he shows young kids that they can. You know, whatever their physical size or whatever else that they've uh, that they've got a place in the game and that they can uh, aspire to being a player like that. You know, and, and ditto Kurt Lee Renzi, who um, was Same terrific for South Africa, yeah. in yeah. a more dominant yeah. team. Well, there were there were a few around. There were a few, yeah, I mean, yeah. we did, and we didn't see Will Jordan. Um, bit bigger than those two, yeah. but we didn't see Jordan during the Autumn Internationals, where he can do stuff out of the box. Yeah, which is which just genuinely exciting. And um, you've got Kane and Moody as well in South Africa, and and he's a he's a thriller minute. You know that, and you've got the new Wallaby wing. I know he's a different style of wing, etc. But those li- those little guys, or comparatively little guys, in today's game, it gives the game the light and shade it needs. Uh, but more than that, I I just think that in the Italian context specifically, what Capuozzo has done is worth its weight in gold. It's beyond value because that Italian side was. In, in the wider picture, was really, really struggling for mm. legitimacy. And he's exactly. given them some legitimacy, and that's that's worth a lot. That's very well put. So unanimous there, I kind of expected that. I'm not expecting us to be unanimous on try of the year. Brendan, I'll come to you. Well, I, I'm going to go back, as, as Chris mentioned, it, it, we forget that it wasn't uh, Ange, the man who scored the try, it's Eduardo Padovani. But that try was, for all the reasons that Chris has already mentioned, but it was also a breathtakingly beautiful try to watch. It was absolutely fabulous on the eye. And to have that in the 79th minute and the break and the precision of the right and the precision that the coolness to pass inside to get the conversion to win the match. I mean, that's a try that you will happily be watching in 50 years' time. And it's been a year of great tries. I mean, Henry Arundel's individual try at Toulon was phenomenal. But what was the try of the season? For me, it was that one in, in, uh, in Cardiff. Nick. Okay, well, look, I'm going to go um, against the grain in a in a way, and and it's probably appropriate in the sense that we're talking about England and where they're going and 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 where they've been and and what they showed, you know, um, for Borthwick in particular, there was a try in the game against New Zealand where they went from their own 22, it went through 12 pairs of hands. So 12 different players, rather. Some of them handled, you know, um, I think Mako Vunapala handled three times. Stewart handled three times. Um, so how that many made them five metres. How, yeah. how many pairs of hands it went through? I don't know, you know, but uh, it featured the ribbons backhander and so on and so forth. Yeah. So Freddie Stewart's try in that game was a fantastic team try. Br- brilliant team try. Okay, interesting. Not one I expected to come up. And Chris? Well, I have, for reasons we've spoken of, I don't, I don't disagree with Bren on the on that Italian try because of its what I consider to be an unusual significance around it. Uh, but I have two others. What one one was um, one was just um, a feat of rugby wit and instinct and a bit of imagination, and the other one was just a sublime example of. And off the training uh, of a training field move, which came to fruition beautifully. Uh, the first of them, the the, the wit and the imagination was was uh, 
was the Australian try against Wales, which was scored in the end by Lalakai Fiketi. But if you remember, there was it started about five metres in front of their own <laughs> sticks. There was a dangerous chip, which Bernard Foley did something which every coach would have sacked him for had it not actually resulted in what it resulted in, and just flapped the ball back to where he thought somebody might be hanging around to get himself out of some trouble. And he, it, was, it, was, it was picked up by by Len Ikatao, and then there was Jock Campbell, and then there was Jed Holloway, and they freed Tom right down the wing. And Campbell had shown the instincts to get up on his shoulder and provide the... So it's a length of the field try, finish off by Fichetti, but f- from the direst straights in front of their own sticks. And it was a terrific... It was a terrific piece of group individuality, if that's not a contradiction in terms. Everyone who participated in that try got everything absolutely right from the most unpromising beginnings. But my favourite try, I think better than that, was just New Zealand against England. Bowden Barrett kicking to the wing inside his own 22, off the outside of his right boot. Caleb Clark, who you wouldn't back to catch everything that ever comes his way. I don't think his strengths may lie in other areas. But he caught it and reverse pass to Rico Ioanni, who was just poetry in motion, really, for 70 metres down the left. And it was a try beautiful in its simplicity, yeah. complete simplicity. Three acts. Three I acts. agree with you. Simple. A kick, a, simple kick, a, a kick, a pass, and... And Rico just, who's one of the great sites in rugby when he's playing well, down the left-hand side. So that would be that would be my try because I'm a simple person and I quite like simple things. Oh, this is a difficult one. Just one correction. I think you said that the Australia try was against Wales. You're talking right. about the one against France, aren't you? Oh, was that against France? Oh, it was yeah. against France, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want me to go through all of that again? No. Yes. <laughs> I'll say in France or do you just want to cut out Wales? No, I'll just um, expose you, I think, actually, in the edit. Yeah, well, that, that'll be good. <laughs> that'll be good. There's um, plenty of that going on. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> it, was, it was against France, you're right. And yeah. I've actually got it written down here. Lalakai Fichetti v France. Oh, I believe so you. So where did that go wrong? Uh, this is where my indecisive nature is going to shine through. I am going to go with Capuazzo's try. Purely, man, because, <laughs> purely for what it meant for Italy rugby and what it seems to have sparked since, I think, as well as it being beautiful to watch. Yeah, it's it felt like a seismic moment at the time. And it's even with hindsight, it looks even more seismic now, given what Capuazzo and Italy have gone on to do this year. And it was against Wales, which can be no bad thing. No, no, exactly. So Chris, Also, would you... I right, be right in thinking that would be Eddie Butler's last Six Nations commentary? Yes. Yeah, it would have been. And that was the last, uh, right at the end of his last match. It would have been, of course, yeah. Leads us on to the next question, actually. Uh... Well, it does, obviously. We had him on the podcast a few months before he very sadly passed away. Yeah, favourite podcast episode. And I, I haven't quite tossed up the scores for who's winning, but there can't be more than one in it. So choose wisely. Chris, I'll come to you first. Well, they've all they've all been brilliant, but then I only listen to the ones in which I participate. So... Narcissist. I I think they've been... I think they've been uh, terrific as a bunch. We we, we had a lot of fun with Mark Evans, which ended... which 
<laughs> which was which was a, a confrontational kind of episode and and um and all the better for it as an as a bit of an eye opener i think the most instructive one that i can remember uh vividly was actually with christian wade which i thought here's a bloke who's had a whole raft of unusual sort of sporting experiences so i thought it was illuminating on what on the descriptions he was able to give of life as an NFL player, but he was also very, very honest about the disappointments and the frustrations he'd experienced in his initial rugby career and and his hopes for a secondary rugby career, which are now beginning to come to fruition, obviously, over in um, over in France. And I, I thought for, for, for someone who was, as a young player, and I tried to interview him, it was and reminded him of this. And he said next to nothing over the space of an hour, um, not because he was being rude in any way, but just because, you know, he pro- probably felt intimidated by the intellectual force he was up against. Um, but in, in fairness to Christian, I thought he was really very interesting about a range of unusual things. So for that reason, that was the most fascinating I felt. Nick? Yeah, I, I'm going to go with the, the Mark Evans one. I enjoyed the uh, the gloves off, and um, you know I I didn't agree, and I haven't agreed with him for uh, for for as long <laughs> for decades, and I and I still don't agree with him. <laughs> Actually, I think he came round to our way of thinking in the end. He sort of conceded that promotion relegation was worthwhile. So uh, yeah, we'll see. But it's funny it you say that because I had Rob Warman, who you all know, phone me up after that and said I'd won on points. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, although I felt like I'd taken a bit of a kicking, but um, he said, "No, you won on points." Well, and, and, and when Nick, and when Nick says, of course, that Mark came away, uh, came round to um, our by by which he means his way of thinking, <laughs> way, way, way of thinking. Of course, who can argue because because Mark has always been the first to put his hand up and admit when he's wrong. Uh, <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see how he comes back from Fiji. <laughs> Can I just lob in two more who I feel ought to have a you know a bit of a mention? I thought Eddie Butler was very nice. It was a very it was a good long chat with Eddie and um about more than just rugby, wasn't it? Welsh yeah. nationalism and yeah. everything. And it took on this extra poignancy just a couple of months later, um, when alas, um, you know, it came to an end up in the mountains in Peru. So I thought that was a really nice one. Brian Ashton was a delight. Uh, I hadn't spoken to Brian for ages, you know. we us guys, 15, 20 years ago, we talked to Brian once a week. I haven't spoken to Brian for 10 years. It was just a breath of fresh air to get his rugby brilliance in my ear again. And I just, for some reason, particularly enjoyed Tony Underwood. It was another guy spoke to all the time 25 years ago. Um, 97 Lions, you become mates with them all. Tony was a, just a great tourist, a great bloke. Has lived a very interesting life since then. It was just so good to catch up with an intelligent, um, you know, not deep thinking, but sharp thinking individual like him and see what he was getting up to. It's just delightful. But Christian Wade and Mark Evans, I think, top the tree here. Yeah, I, feel, I, I think they do. And, well, Chris, you said it off air, but to be able to have someone on and tell Brendan that he's talking bollocks, I think probably has to be the most memorable moment <laughs> of the year. And as a result, I think we have to give that to Mark Evans and therefore Nick Kane. That just about wraps us up. I think that means that Nick and Brendan are edging out Chris by one point. Chris, I feel sorry for your wife who has to deal with your bad mood for the rest of the day and potentially for Christmas now. 
Well, there are a couple of points there. She wouldn't marry someone like me. So, oh, sorry, um, sorry. so, so hey, that, that Holly, that's turn him off now. Um, um, and she, she, she will <laughs> get too. to hear, she will get to hear about it. And as the IRA always used to say, we know where you live, Ollie. So, um, and secondly, I wanted to lose because who the hell wants to be one of a crowd? <laughs> well, we, yeah, you're certainly not that, Chris. Don't worry, you're, you'll never be that. And actually, I didn't even realize we were in a competition until you said surprise. <laughs> Probably the longest episode we've ever had as well. So, well done if you've still made it all the way to the end, gentlemen. Thank you so much for your presence throughout the year. It's been a great first year of podcasting. We've got a second series with a brand new format in 2022. So we got that to look forward to. Have a great Christmas to you all and you all listening at home as well. Good stuff. Is that 2023 we've got a new one? Ollie, did I say 2022? Yeah. Oh, did I? Uh, let me yeah. start that again. I'll bet you correct that, though. You won't <laughs> correct me saying it was a try in Wales, will you? <laughs> you know what? Yeah. I'm not going to correct that then. <laughs> Chris, maybe it's a good thing we have a three-week break now. <laughs> Merry Christmas, guys. And yeah, I look forward to seeing you in the new year. Have yeah. a great time, everyone. Happy Christmas, Chris. Well then. The Rugby Paper Podcast will be back in 2023 for its second series. A reminder that the editions of the Rugby Paper will be released on Friday the 23rd of December and Saturday the 31st of December over the festive period. Merry Christmas, have a great holiday season and we will see you in the new year. Mm-hmm.